if you're using the debugger because you have no other way of knowing what your code is doing under the hood, you're doing something wrong. It means you're not logging enough, you're not instrumenting enough, you, you haven't created enough infrastructure in your program to be able to track and trace your issues effectively. Hello and welcome to the PyBytes podcast, where we talk about Python, career, and mindset. We're your hosts. I'm Julian Sequeira. And I am Bob Beldebos. If you're looking to improve your Python, your career, and learn the mindset for success, this is the podcast for you. Let's get started. Welcome back to the PyBytes podcast. This is Bob Beldebos. And today I have Thomas Geiger back on the show. And we talk about some very useful debugging techniques and ways to make your code more robust. And we even go into design patterns as a nice bonus. So um, without further ado, hope you enjoy this episode and reach out to us if you have any feedback. All right, Thomas, welcome back to uh, to PyBytes podcast. Really happy that you're back. How are you doing today? Pleasure being back, Bob. And thank you for having me. Yeah. So what are we going to talk about today? I believe we were going to talk about debugging. Ooh, because exciting. It is exciting. It's sort of an overlooked activity, isn't it? Or it's interesting yeah. to me how we tend to separate mentally coding versus debugging as if mm. it's two wildly separate things. But yep. the process of coding really is debugging. I mean, unless you're an exceptional person who can just compose code in your head and it runs perfectly. <laughs> the first time you hit the button. <laughs> if you're that person, well done. Um, then switch off it. this episode and go yeah. back to writing code. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Realistically, probably not. not if the you're the, if yeah. you're the rest of us, then I'm sure the coding process involves debugging at some point, right? Yeah, exactly. So before for, before getting to the meat, um, we always start with some wins, right? So do we have a, a win to share today? Uh, yeah, I actually, and it's apropos to the topic, i.e. debugging, that I spend the weekend chasing down a annoying little issue in uh, Piper, which is the open source project I maintain. And I noticed the same thing in a blog article you recently wrote, which is that the debugging wasn't actually on functional code in and of itself. It was actually on the code around the code. In other words, the automation code or the testing code. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of a multiple layers of indirection here where we're not actually, the functionality itself works, the functional code, but the code that is testing the code is not quite doing what we expect it to do. So you're in fact debugging the code that is testing or debugging the code that you have. Um, and this also leads me to the thought that I think this is something we can very easily overlook when we're planning how much work something actually is. And we say, I think this will take me a day, but it ends up taking three days because hmm. we thought about the functional code change. We didn't think about the code around the code that we would also have to work with. So uh, this involved uh, class factories, subtleties around how the class type is injected into a class method and how you can intercept that via mocking. It is 
pretty abstruse, and unless you've run into those yourself, you're very unlikely to care. So I'm I won't <laughs> I won't bore you with details. <laughs> right. And yourself, have you had a good win recently, Bob? Yes. And and before I move on, um, if people want to check out your project, it's Piper, P-Y-P-Y-R, right? That's it. And we spoke about it on episode 41, letting the tire hit the road. How much software planning do you really need? Your first appearance on the PyWhites podcast. So yeah, if you want to see some really cool Python project and code, and uh, I just want to leave that reference here. And we, of course, link it in the show notes. My win, well, I bored the audience enough with the fast API learning path we're doing, and that's coming along. That's a win in itself. But um, to stick it to debugging, uh, I wrote an article about debugging uh, based on an issue I was hitting with iSort and pre-commit. And that's a win in itself because we hadn't updated the blog in three or four months or maybe even more. And um, yeah, I think the, the takeaway for me was like, if you hit interesting things in your developer workflow, write it down because I could have easily moved along. Uh, but this was an interesting, there were some interesting things uh, I learned and, and practiced. And some of that we're going to talk about today. That it's, it's pretty, well, it took me like two hours to <laughs> make it into a fully fledged blog post, right? But it's now in a in, in content piece and we can point people to it and um, it will help people, right? So um, I think that's that's a win. Good win too. And a good tip, write things down. Yeah, the, the other thing I want to say about that is is I literally opened Vim and just started writing in plain text. <laughs> and Derek Sivers last week shared an article about that, that he's prolific um, because he just uses plain text. And then he later worries about making it beautiful and turning it into books and whatnot. But he just writes in an editor, right? And that's an enormous relief because it's very easy to... And I'm getting into a lot of side topics. But anyway, this one I think is important because we always say as a Python developer, you should become a content creator. But a lot of people over-perfect that process, right? But no, just start with plain text. Yeah. And close to that, you could do actually markdown on GitHub, right? It's, it's not that... Yeah, don't yeah. worry about the tools, basically. Yeah, and yeah, no, I wouldn't... I mean, personally, given that the word content creator maybe carries overtones today of doing TikTok videos... Uh, in my case, I mean, write things down just as notes to yourself. Yeah. Because I, again, speaking for myself, but three weeks from now, I don't remember why I did something or even if I did something. Um, in fact, I just in the last week had a joy of having to set up a new development environment on a new machine. And there's a lot of little tweaks that you you don't remember you made, yep. you know, in your environment setup, little config files you might have fiddled with. And if you don't have those written down somewhere, finding all those settings again is a significant time sink. No, exactly. Great tip. Yeah, very important. It's scary how easy and how much we forget. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's uh, let's get into some debugging then. Um, I noted down four subtopics here um, we wanted to address, right? Visualization, debugging process, tracking and tracing, and preventative uh, measures. So starting with the visualization, what do you mean with the visualization? Why is it important? Uh, I don't want to veer too much into chess as an analogy, but mm -hmm. if any listeners are into chess, a key skill is visualization, which is to say, when you're playing chess, you have to plan in advance the moves you're going to make. And good players have an ability to see in their head 
the way the moves are going to work. So uh, also maybe there was that Netflix series, right, where they demonstrated the lady having the uh, the chessboard on the in her head displayed on the ceiling. To make yourself a better coder, you need to be able to, as you read code, you need to be able to visualize what that code is actually going to do. And I've got a little bit of a side point here, which is I've noticed some people depend on the debugger a little bit too much. Now, if you're just beginning to code and you're still learning code, then I think debugging a debugger is useful. And the debugger is absolutely a useful tool. But if you're using the debugger because you have no other way of knowing what your code is doing under the hood, you're doing something wrong. It means you're not logging enough. You're not instrumenting enough. You, you haven't created enough infrastructure in your program to be able to track and trace your issues effectively. Um, so you should really be coding and planning your code as if a debugger didn't even exist. Mm, your, code, your code should have the ability to pump out log output if you, for example, change an environment variable, or maybe there's a debug switch that you have uh, at the end of a CLI app. Uh, however you do it, you need to be able to switch on some sort of verbose debugging mode that will give you detailed error output, detailed error messages, log error messages somewhere. How exactly you do this will depend on your platform. It will depend on the context in which your app runs. But I mean, I, I'm sure I don't need to lecture people yeah. on the options you have, right? Everything from event logs to uh, you know your, your own custom tracking and tracing files. And... Thus, then, with visualization, I'm not saying don't use the debugger. I'm saying a debugger is a useful tool while you're still coding. But when you're dealing with an app that has been deployed and in production, or you're trying to hunt down an error that someone elsewhere reported to you, that being able to visualize what code does just as you read it is an important skill to have. Um, and especially with async code, right? Because when you're a debugger works very well when you're stepping through sync code. But the moment you start dealing with async and you've got events firing all over the place and it's happening asynchronously, that gets very hard to, to conceptualize and track what's going on. So you sort of, I think it's a good idea to harden yourself or train yourself to develop that skill. And I, sadly, I don't really have a good tip for learning this quickly. I think it just comes with time. So do it 10,000 times and, and you'll maybe get a bit better at it. So code, yeah. run your code, check your output logs, where you write about what the code actually does. And I think what you get at the end of the day with visualization is that it helps you track down areas of interest quicker. Yeah. So when you're in a code base and you're trying to tra tra track down an error, you're trying to track down a, a transient issue, you can find your usual suspects more quickly yep. because you can kind of speed read through the code and, and have a good mental idea of what that code will be doing and where the problem is likely are likely to be and then you can hone in on where the problem is likely to be more quickly yeah in the article i wrote which we'll link below when i was debugging isort the minus v or verbose which was tremendously useful that actually showed the exact strings i got then i could then look up in the source code yes and then only then I used the debugger and could be very targeted, but I start. It started with the logging. It started with yeah. getting more messaging strings around the problem that I could then look for in the code base. Yeah, I think this brings us to a second point very quickly, which is visualization is all 
fine and good. And it helps mm. you get to the problem more quickly. But then you have to get your hands dirty. And I th- I've also noticed people forgetting about that step. Uh, or what I sometimes see is it's almost like a sense of existential despair that comes over a developer where you just stare at a broken line of code and you think it's going to fix itself somehow. Or if you run the same code repeatedly enough that it will somehow start working. <laughs> I wish that was uh, was true. <laughs> Sadly not, right? Uh, but, you know, the, the fact is, the point of a machine is that given the same inputs, it's going to give you the same output every time, right? Which is good news as well, right? It is deterministic. It is, it is deterministic, exactly. That's a That's a good word for it. And I think psychologically, it's important to accept that the thing is broken. And it doesn't help you just to stare at the screen and press the run button repeatedly and hope that the 20th time it's somehow not gonna not gonna be broken anymore. So you have to get your hands dirty, right? Yeah. You have you have to get in there, aggressively isolate the code that you think is causing the problem. And visualization will help you get to that code more quickly. Like you say, you can you can maybe uh, put a, a debug point, a breakpoint, and what I also tend to do, Bob, is, especially when I'm on large projects that are cumbersome to run, because mm. there's a lot of code in them, I actually physically copy out the code that I think uh, Isolate certain areas mm. of the code into a script.py or whatever. Exactly, um, yeah. So in arb.py, script.py, whatever it might be, um, I, I have a little scratch folder that I just keep sort of messy little bits and pieces of, of string and string in it like this. And... In this Py file, I will copy in the bare minimum of the code I'm using. So let's say there's a class and there's a function, right? And some imports that's needed to make them work. Just copy and paste them in. Because this now allows me to run just this code in isolation. And I invariably start using my favorite debugging tool, which is print. <laughs> cool. I just hit throw in a bunch of print statements, printing out where you are in the sequence of code. Um, what this also gives allows me to do is cycle over the code more quickly. Because again, on, on larger frameworks, it might take longer to get to the thing that's breaking if you're running the entire sequence every time. And this allows you to cycle much more rapidly over smaller iterations. And what I do then is try and reproduce the problem. And uh, at this point, I start taking things away. Like take as many things away as I can very destructively until either the problem's not there anymore or it breaks in a new way. And the new way it breaks in might give you some information that's interesting. Uh, so in this regard, uh, a very valuable button is the toggle comment shortcut. Uh, if you're uh, on Mac, it tends to be uh, the Mac key forward slash. On Windows, it's control forward slash. Mm-hmm. Comment out a line, run it again, uncomment the line, run it again. Okay. So that you can see the effect of a line of code being in the output or not. Oh, like divide and conquer, like the bisect module, right? That you were... <laughs> yes. Half it down every time to get yeah, the yeah, exact yeah. piece of yeah. code that's failing. Yeah, exactly. And something else that helps me about this is, is, is kind of structural. That especially, again, in a big code base where you're maybe dealing with intertwining dependencies. So let's say there's a couple of classes that interact with each other in some sort of way. When you trim it down into one file like this, it gives you, for me at least, uh, it makes it easier for me to see the structure. Like you can see the bare bones of what, how the, the, the components relate to each other structurally. And it makes it easier for me to spot in, at one glance if something is not relating to something else in the way that it should or if it's not coordinating in the way that it should. 
Whereas, you know, something like that might be, you might spot that, say, you're assigning to the wrong attribute, right? which would be, which is harder to do when the classes are on completely separate modules, for example. But when they're right on top of each other, you might notice a spelling mistake quicker, for example. Or, you know, you might notice a casing issue more quickly because you, you have something direct to compare it against. So it's, yeah, it's all about getting to a reproducible use case that's as small as possible, isolated as possible, and that you can yeah. quickly run and run again because you will mm. run this constantly to kind of pinpoint where the exact issue is, right? Yeah, exactly. Great tip. Yeah, I think that's one of the essential debugging techniques um, I use as well. And and will save you a lot of time. <laughs> and will be the difference between finding it or not finding it or taking a whole day to fix a bug versus maybe fix it in half an hour, an hour. Yeah. So it has a great ROI. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So is that also in relation to the tracking and tracing or what did you have in mind for that subtopic? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, tracking and tracing for me is almost a preventative thing in mm -hmm. that it's something you should be wiring into your code from day one. Um, so for example, notable branches or conditional statements, you should log the fact that you're in that branch or that you've triggered that branch in your code to your debug output or your trace output. If you're in Python, which I'm assuming you will be, given the podcast we're on. Uh, <laughs> if you're listening here, you probably are. <laughs> yeah. Use the logger class in Python. It is very light on performance. It's been it's very optimized. So if you do logger.debug, your debug string, it doesn't actually have uh, a real performance impact. You, you shouldn't be scared of littering okay. your code with debug statements. And you mean uh, the logging module from the standard library, right? Yes, not, not an external. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Just standard right. lib logging. Nothing, okay. nothing fancy. Yeah. Uh, it's plenty optimized. Uh, it's plenty clever how it works with logging levels. A uh, good example of a singleton pattern if you're looking for one. And given how lightweight it is on performance, there's there's no real reason not to be using it and just aggressively helping you, the right. you from the future. When you yeah. hit a bug, then you can actually see what your code is doing. Hey, I know it's not a design patterns discussion, but uh, you mentioned singleton. Can you expand a little bit on that? Yes. A singleton is either a anti-pattern or a pattern, depending on your politics. <laughs> but it is a design where you only ever have one instance of a okay. class. So differently put, it's when you have a shared, a single class that is shared by all callers. Yeah, so it a makes very a lot of sense with logging. Yeah. yeah, so a very typical thing, uh, the way you might use a singleton is in a cache, which uh, the exact purpose of a cache is you want to share some, some undefined stuff between different callers, right? Um, a singleton also gets you away from some of the difficulties you have with concurrency. If you can guarantee that you're only accessing one object. Uh, in Python, you actually get singletons for free because whenever you do a global variable in a module, it is effectively a singleton. The, the Python framework takes care of that for you. Interesting. Uh, this is uh, maybe, it's not so relevant in Python. It's, it's a design pattern that you have to take a bit more care of when you're in C Sharp, C Sharp or Java or uh, one of the more traditional OO languages. Uh, in Python, like I say, you just get them for free, so it's not really a, it's not really a pattern you have to worry about too much. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, not to go into design patterns, but uh, sometimes it's kind of overrated in Python because it seems you get many for free, or you're already using them without specifically naming them that way. For example, default dict in the collections module, but you're basically using a factory. Yeah. Without 
probably talking about a factory. You just do it. <laughs> and you don't have to call it factory either. Yeah. 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 Back on the uh, debugging topic. So the fourth one is preventative measures. And I think you already alluded to it a little bit um, so far. Um, any additional pointers there for us? Yeah, I think the I think a lot of the how to code better tips that you're probably getting every day from somewhere, a lot of it are actually to do with making your troubleshooting and debugging life simpler. So uh, encapsulating scope, avoid globals. I mean, the real reason for that is it, it makes it harder to get strange or hard to troubleshoot problems. Something I would also add to that is to avoid spaghetti. Uh, spaghetti meaning code that lacks structural cohesion. I don't really know how to define spaghetti code other than I, kn I know it when I see it, which is, which is not a great definition. Maybe but, very large functions with a lot of indenting and mm, hard, to yeah. test, hard to isolate. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Where you don't really have separation of concerns anymore. A function's right. not doing a single thing anymore. Uh, Code has a lot of weird dependencies pointing in a lot of different directions, and it's not entirely clear how the object dependency graph looks. Mm -hmm. uh, the cleaner your code is, the tidier your house is, the easier it is to spot when something is out of order. So there's sort of a hygiene aspect to your coding that yeah. the more structurally cohesive you are, the more likely you are to find problems. And something I would add to that is adversarial testing, which is not really a phrase, but I'm introducing it. By adversarial testing, I mean your unit test shouldn't be just testing the success path and then you're done. You should aggressively be trying to break your code. Yep. In other words, missing values, non-inputs, a file's not available on disk, the file is available, but permissions are getting blocked or permissions uh, don't allow you to read it. Special characters, encoding issues. Let's say you're not on UTF-8. Uh, which is still a reality if you're cross-platform on Windows. If you're not testing adversarially, if you're not trying to break your code, you're not going to notice those problems. Yeah. And those problems then rear their head later, which hopefully you can find quickly, or maybe you don't. Um, so as an example of this, I was on the last update I was doing to Piper. I could have had a bug, but I didn't because of aggressive testing. Are you stuck in endless commutes? Have you ever dreamed about being able to work anywhere, control your schedule, give back to society, become an open source contributor, or become a successful developer, doubling your salary? Well, it's time to look at the PDM program, and it's time to actually build something that's going to help you get the future that you're looking for. The people that we've worked with in the PDM program have achieved some incredible things, including starting their own SaaS business with their own application. Imagine that. That could be you building your own application, selling it, making your own income. We've had people more than double their salary. I'm not making that up. I'll say it again. Double their salary after completing our program and applying for developer jobs. These are the sorts of things that you can actually achieve through 10 weeks of dedicated life coaching in the PDM program. So here's the challenge. If you are actually serious about taking your future into your own hands and not letting someone else control that for you, click the link below and get on a call with myself or Bob. That's right. We want to talk with you about your goals and how you can use Python to leverage your career. So book a call below.
And we cannot wait to talk with you soon. This has to do with mutable types in Python, which is to say something like a list or a dict. And so as I think we all know, if you append into a shallow copy of a list, the original list also updates. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's so insidious. <laughs> it's very insidious. You're if right. If you're making copies to start with of that list. Of exactly. Copies. So you need to be very clear on when you're working with a shallow copy versus a deep copy. Otherwise, you might be mutating your original data. And if the original data is meant to be pristine, that's not something you should be doing. Now, there's various ways of coding around this. You could, you could, as a design pattern, only work with immutable objects. But the way that you catch this issue is by, in my tests, it so happens that I rather redundantly also checked the source object, that mm. it was still as expected. Now, that was strictly speaking not necessary for the test. The test was actually testing something else. But then that made me notice that I forgot about the shallow copy right. and that it the, the original source was mutated. So this was preventing a hard-to-find bug just by taking a 30 seconds extra, putting a few extra asserts in your code. Yeah. And once you have a couple of tests, it's, it's easier to do. It's just... Um... Yeah, adding an, another test case on on the existing one, which yeah, yeah, yeah. The first and, test uh, is usually the most work anyway. And asserts are cheap. Like, don't be shy. Even in existing tests, just add more asserts, testing that the source conditions are still as you expect them to be. It's not just about the destination, if you will. Uh, another good housekeeping tip that I have is take the time to write good error messages, because again, future you will thank you. Another very recent example I had is I got I got an error that said attribute error object has no attribute get <laughs> which a little bit mysterious now if you've been around Python for a while you probably would start thinking this might have something to do with a list mm. you know uh, or it might have something to do with a property because the you know it's looking for a get property but even so it's it's not the world's most useful error. So I find a lot of the time in better code I write, I'm actually spending a fair bit of time catching exceptions not so and re-raising them, but what I'm actually doing is augmenting the error message. So it's, especially if you're writing a end user facing code, in other words, it's not code for other developers, it's code that an, uh, you know, a, a non-technical audience might consume. You want the, you want the error to be fully informative imagine you in six months when you can't remember anything about mm. the code you just wrote would would the error message actually tell you what the problem is i'm sure we all have errors like this we've seen you know object not found yeah. a very typical error what what does that mean yeah to to but, an end user that that's crap well know? even even to you yeah even yeah because it's not naming any specific object or place yeah. in the code or <laughs> or the other famous one is object not defined right and it's yeah. okay why? Yeah. What object's not defined? What What's the code trying to do? Why is the code looking for this object to be defined? You know, an error message like, I can't find the configuration source because the web server's timed out. That starts being a useful error rather yeah. than, you know, object non-exception <laughs> because yeah. you, you didn't trap for the fact that there might be a non-response from something. So less mysterious errors, right? And that, again, it's a code hygiene practice that Take the extra minute or two to write your code a bit more carefully and to trap for errors a bit more carefully. And that makes your debugging life in the future way easier. 
Yeah, it's like two minutes now to save hours in the future. Yeah, exactly. Good return. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and also like that mindset here of not only thinking about the happy path, right, but becoming mm -hmm. a skeptic and always think of what can go wrong, right? And then you're probably going to add a lot more error checking to your code, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, saying this, this is not to say all exceptions should be handled. You know, I mean, an exception is, should be an exceptional case where the program cannot proceed anymore. I'm merely suggesting that if you can make your errors provide more context, do so. And this is also relevant for your debugging and your tracing outputs that you do. The less knowledge you need when you're consuming the debug and the trace output, the better. You know, because it means you have to guess and infer less when you try and troubleshoot your code in the future. Awesome. So visualization, debugging process, tracking and tracing, preventive measures. Thanks for all the tips. I think that's um, very useful and it will definitely help uh, our audience. Uh, anything more to add or? Yeah, I guess if you're working in a corporate environment under SLA, right? Uh, so if you're doing uh, ops or support work, that the way you debug and troubleshoot also becomes slightly different. I think when we're working in a more private capacity or we're working on open source even, or we're working on our personal projects, uh, you almost view a bug as an opportunity to improve everything. Or you maybe will embark on a big refactor that will make the bug disappear. But when you're doing corporate work, you of course can't do that. Right. What you in fact have to do is touch as little of the code as possible. So sometimes this even leads to what you might think of as a counterproductive fix where you know, you might have to stitch up one or two lines, but a more fundamental problem remains. But you're not allowed to touch the more fundamental problem because you are in a code freeze effectively. Yeah. And, and there when you many developers changing the code in parallel and it's, yeah, exactly. it's way more restricted, right? Um, yeah. You have to make compromises almost. You very much have to. And this makes it all the more important what we were talking about earlier, which is isolating the problem aggressively and finding the exact line or the exact part of the line that is causing the problem and only changing that yeah. and not changing anything else. Um, I mean, I despair that the world works this way, but sadly, when you're under commercial pressure, this is the reality of how you have to work. You don't necessarily get to make everything better and code everything up perfectly. There's, like you say, Bob, the, the compromise to contend with. No, I'm, ha I'm happy that you're bringing this up because there's definitely a difference um, <laughs> fixing a bug in a relatively small open source project versus working in an enterprise environment with a million lines of code, commercial solution with 50 developers committing to it constantly. I found that you actually, yeah, you have to be very minimal in your scope and almost be creative to fix the bug, but really also manage there not to be any side effects. There's there's way more chance to introduce any side effects at that skill. Yeah. And also the side effects have commercial implications. Right. Because you have to meet SLA. The company has a financial penalty if you don't hit the SLA. You know, any any further bugs you introduce as a result of fixing the bugs might have a further penalty implication on you. So yeah, there's some, shall we say, political considerations here in addition to the, the good software. <laughs> yeah, can be very tough. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, 
a tough line. Cool. So, but these tips will help also developers in, in that scenario, in that situation. So yeah, again, thanks for sharing. And lastly, what are you reading? Any any uh, good books? I am reading some trashy sci-fi from the 90s. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, it's called Metropolitan by Walter John Williams. It's, I guess, somewhere between fantasy and sci-fi. I don't even know why I'm talking about this. I should be, I should be lying and saying I'm reading something much more worthy instead. You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah, that's cool. Like I a think good, a lot of our audience will appreciate sci-fi. Like a like a good improving book on design patterns or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's sort of you, you. It's sort of like wizards, but in a sci-fi context. There's some in common with a lot of sci-fi. There's a lot of uh, philosophizing about uh, social structures, politics, uh, overpopulation in the future. Uh, political systems and how they relate to the populace. So in some ways, it is a commentary on some social issues that we can even see today. Hmm. In other ways, it's just a silly sci-fi book. So if you're into some classic 90s sci-fi, Walter John Williams, he's a great author. Cool. I'll we'll link that below. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I'm uh, I'm reading, as always, many books at the same time and not finishing any. <laughs> but uh... I'm not going to lie, Bob. Every time I hear what you're reading, I feel very insecure because you're always reading very worthy and improving books. And here I am with complete trash on my side. But, <laughs> psst, I don't finish them. <laughs> <laughs> writing solid code, I did finish. Uh, I even noticed Julian asking me, did you finish it? And he said, yes, that, well, that one I did. Uh, but yeah, the Gang of Four or Design Patterns book, um, Although it's a Java, it's the classic, right? So a lot of design patterns yeah. will be Java-ish. Um, I think it's still a great read just to, un- to just to think about design patterns and, and architecture. So yeah, I'm committing accountability here to, to finish <laughs> that one once and for all. <laughs> you were hinting earlier, uh, Bob, when we were talking about the singleton pattern. Since you're reading The Gang of Four, do you often... Or how does that interrelate with Python for you? Because like you mentioned, Python in very very many ways doesn't quite do patterns in the same way that you would in Java mm-hmm. because the language works differently. How are you finding those patterns relating into Python? Or is it more that the book is uh, broadening your mind in other ways? Yeah, just generically. I'm not very far in a book, actually, to be honest, um, yet. So, But I already noticed that some patterns... We just get for free almost, and we just don't like the default dicta I mentioned, or libraries like Factory Boy when you're um, want to create objects for Django, and or the Factory Pattern as Flask uses it uses it in on their documentation to create an app instance. So it's almost like a given, and you wouldn't really call those design patterns per se. Um, but in that sense, Brandon Rhodes has this design pattern page as well. So after the book, I'm definitely going to go to his because he will probably um, translate or filter out what's really relevant for Python. And I love his work. I mean, I've, I've watched many of his talks. So yeah, for Python, I definitely want to look at his site as well in this context. Yeah. One of the things I actually like about python is that you don't have this overwhelming corpus of mm. proper pattern practice that so frequently sidetracks from actual work getting done 
oh, don't get me wrong, I'm all for patterns and practices, and I'm all for a good design pattern. But uh, a lot of the time in programming languages that will remain nameless for the second, I find that technical conversations turn into very abstract, almost theological grounds hmm. where people are arguing in the abstract about different design patterns rather than you know getting on with actual code. And there's sort of a practicality to Python, you know, a kind of get things done in a simple way, which is like I like. And yeah, I no, it, like like the set of Python, right? Uh, practicality beats purity, right? And um, it's a language <laughs> where you can yeah. get stuff done very quickly and and in a clean way. But you're also responsible yourself, right? Like for example, with the whole encapsulation and and private versus public attributes yeah. um, where java has getters and setters yeah in python you can just access anything right and yeah although we and then we we work more, more with conventions like if a method or attribute has an underscore then yeah. you should deal with it in a private manner but the language doesn't enforce it you can easily override an underscore yeah. or something right I but think we're, we're all consenting adults right yeah yeah that that's where that saying is coming from right so yeah but yeah, that actually does lead to shorter code. And as long as we just be idiomatic about it and, and use the language as it was designed, yeah. then we're pretty good. And yeah. yeah, I think something that helps me particularly about patterns is it helps me recognize the shape of a problem better. So we were talking about a singleton earlier. Hmm. Once you know about a singleton pattern, you start recognizing when you're using one that Oh, this is a singleton, but you also understand a bit more about what that means. Yeah. Right. When you start thinking about things like shared state or shared connections, you might more intuitively start thinking about maybe using a singleton. If you're thinking about a problem where you might want to share a workload across multiple threads or multiple processors, a producer consumer pattern works quite well for that. Mm -hmm. And notice I'm not what I'm not what I'm suggesting is that I don't think there is a one true iteration of a pattern. How you implement a pattern is a practical question for the programming language or even the style that you're using within the programming language because there's there's many roads lead to Rome, right? Yeah. So you can say, solve the same problem in different ways. And the patterns are merely how other people have solved them. And if they solve the problem well enough, it might become canonical. But you know, I'm not suggesting a, a slavish devotion to copying a pattern line by line. I'm more saying that it could be a good starting point for you to see the sort of things that someone else was thinking about when they were solving a similar style of problem. And it might also help you avoid a few bugs to circle back to debugging. In yeah, that. Because they learn from experience, right? Yeah. They learn from flawed designs and then they came up with patterns to yeah. make overall make your code more or your design more robust. Yeah, yeah exactly. And avoid the sort of day one issues that you would have run into if you've not had the benefit of their experience yeah. and the benefit of their hindsight of what they could or maybe should have done differently. And that's why I'm, I'm perfectly fine by reading the classic, which is more Java focused, because this is more like, this is not a syntax read. This is um, a philosophical read, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for joining us today and uh, providing all this insight. I think uh, it will be very useful for our audience. And um, yeah, we sure can uh, 
have you back. I was going to invite you back for design panels, but we just did it. So <laughs> you might have to come up with another topic. <laughs> well, design As a patterns, bonus. <laughs> well, design patterns could be a, a longer talk, actually. Um, then yeah, again, sure. I don't know. I don't know how interesting it would be to whom. But <laughs> yeah. well, great catching up with you, and uh, yeah, you have a great day. Same for you, Bob. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Hey, it's Bob again. I hope you enjoyed this episode. To reach out to Thomas, check out our PyBite Slack on pybit.es slash community or hit him up on Twitter where he is Piper Pipes. So that's P-Y-P-Y-R Pipes. If you have any feedback, reach out to us. If you have preferences for topics we should discuss on this podcast, let us know. And please give us a vote if you like this episode. I'm not sure how the podcast apps algorithms work, but it surely will benefit growing the show. Thanks for listening, and we're back next week. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To hear more from us, go to pybyte slash friends. That is pybit.es slash friends and receive a free gift just for being a friend of the show. And to join our thriving Slack community of Python programmers, go to pybytes slash community. That's pybit.es forward slash community. We hope to see you there and catch you in the next episode.